Good afternoon, everyone. Allison Skaberg here, Consolidated Planning Group. We're happy to be here with you this Tuesday afternoon. Um, today, we are here with uh, attorney Christina Lesher from um, the law office of Christina Lesher. We're happy to be back with you again, Christina. So oh, thank, thank you for you. that. I'm so happy to be back, too. It's always awesome. You always give us su such great information. Um, so I'm going to do a little housekeeping. Um, we are in webinar mode today, so we do know you're here and we're glad you're here, but we can't see you and we can't hear you. So if you're wondering, don't worry about that. Um, we do want to answer as many questions as we can. Uh, today we are uh, going from 12 to 1, so if you're planning your lunch or your day, uh, we will be finished by 1 o'clock today. Um, we do want you to put your questions in the chat box. I'm going to be reading those out uh, to Christina and we'll answer just as many as we can. Today's webinar is being recorded. Um, so everybody who is registered for today's webinar will get an email later today with the slides as well as a link for the recording. Um, we'll reference our YouTube channel. Consolidated Planning Group does have a YouTube channel. All of our past webinars um, and educational events live on that YouTube channel and you can subscribe for free. The link for that is going to be in the slides. All of our contact information, both mine and Christina's, are going to be in the slides as well. So Consolidated Planning Group, um, we are a holistic special needs uh, financial planning firm. And I, I anytime we're, we're working with an attorney when we're doing um, a webinar, I always like to talk about the differences of what Christina does versus what we do. Because honestly, we get calls every day for people that say, I want to set up guardianship, or I need a special needs trust, or I need to update my will and those types of things. And we don't do that. So we're, we're not attorneys and we we're not doing the legal documents. We're the money. So I always say they're the paper <laughs> and we're the money. And when, when we're planning for our loved ones um, who have a disability, the reality is, is that you need both. Um, Christina doesn't do what we do, the future care cost estimates, the social security analysis, you know, how and what do I apply for and when the money in the right buckets. Um, she doesn't do that side of the house and I don't do her side of the house when it comes to the legal documents. So um, we just wanted to, to make that clear because it's always a little bit, there's a little bit of confusion there. And the other thing that I want to say that is really important, and if you guys have attended our webinars in the past, you've probably heard me say this again before, so I'm sorry if it's repeating. Um, when it comes to our loved ones with a disability, this is not a DIY project. Um, when it comes to these important matters of your legal documents, uh, the money in the right buckets and things like that, your situation is specialized and we do suggest that you work with a specialist uh, when it comes um, to handling these types of things. Um, there are 250,000 financial advisors in the U.S. and about 125, 150, not thousand total in the U.S. have any background or nuance at all um, in special needs. So it's really, it's really important that you work with the right professionals when, when, you're, when you're getting these documents together and you're working on your plan. Um, because when you don't, a lot of times things end up in the wrong buckets or documents, you know, fail to qualify, you know, in the eyes of the Social Security Administration as a special needs trust and things like that. So, Christina, as always, we're always happy to be to be back with you. And she's going to be talking about the top five special needs documents uh, that you guys need to be knowing about 
So again, I invite you to put your questions in the chat box. We're going to get to, um, to as many as possible. And Christina, I would just love to turn it over to you. Uh, thank you so much, Allison. I always like coming and visiting with you. And I always learn something amazing from Allison. So definitely a wealth of information over at CPG. Um, so yeah, we can start out with our first slide. Um, so oh, there we go. So um, I've got um, a list of documents up here um, just to get started. Um, anybody that's a parent is going to need um, a state planning document. So um, even um, if you've had estate planning documents for a while, maybe you had a will done when you first got married or you first had a baby, you need to have those reviewed. And especially if you have a child that has a disability um, and uh, uh, those documents need to be specialized. So we always encourage families to come and talk to us to see what type of planning is going to be best for them. Meaning, are you going to be a will-based client or maybe a revocable trust-based client? We'll talk about the pros and cons to having just a will or having a trust here in just a little bit. We'll also talk about third-party supplemental needs trusts, um, first-party trusts, and the documents needed for incapacity. Now, we're not thinking about for your child or your adult child. We're thinking about for you. So a lot of times when clients come to my office, the very first scenario they want to talk about is their death, which makes sense as a parent. I'm a parent. I have two boys. You know, we never want to think about, um, you know, us leaving our children. Um, and so usually the scenario for death is what comes up first. But I always want to talk about what happens if you are incapacitated, who is going to manage your financial situation, your health care, because how I look at families is it's like a table. We have to make sure the parents are supported so that that child with a disability or special need is also supported. And then Allison and I love to talk about beneficiary designations. Um, one of the things we're going to repeat and repeat <laughs> again in this PowerPoint is that your beneficiary designations are going to control or trump your legal instruments. So if you have left, say, a life insurance policy to a minor child or a child with a disability that may need some type of public benefit, you're going to want to change that. So it's not uncommon for parents to forget about that one life insurance policy that they have through their office, because you may work with someone like CPG to set up a life insurance policy, but you have to remember those workplace life insurance policies, if you die and it's paid out to a minor child or a child that's receiving some type of public benefit, it can cause a lot of heartache and expense for your family. Um, I like to do things Excel spreadsheet style. I know Allison has her own techniques, but she and I are both in agreement that that is sometimes the big part of the planning that gets left off, especially if you're doing a, a DIY, which I never ever recommend. Uh, you know, they used to sell wills in Office Depot and I would see people looking at them and my husband would have to physically restrain me from going and going to talking to the people at Office Depot. Um, okay, so next slide. Well, can we um, just talk about a moment for, for the wills and, and things? Um, one thing that I would like to say is, is, is that I, I would say it's upward 90, 95% of people, they either have an outdated will or they have no will at all. Yes. Um, so in your mind, from an outdated perspective, when people do have their documents and they have them in place, 
Um, how often? Is it every three years, every five years that they should be reviewed from time to time? What is your recommendation on that as far as reviewing old docs? I would say every two years or if you have a change in life where you've gotten divorced, you've gotten married, you've changed jobs, you inherited money, something has happened in your life. Um, and ideally, you have a copy of those estate planning documents. You have the beneficiary designations listed out correctly so that you're able to review that with an attorney. But I say every two years or if there's a life change. I review personally my estate planning documents the 1st of June. That's my wedding anniversary month. And so I pull out my Excel spreadsheet, our estate planning documents. Not that I have that many accounts, but I want to make sure that there's not some account like an old IRA because my husband changed jobs recently or retirement account that we need to make sure we know what's going on with it. So I like to do that on an annual basis and I pick a date like my anniversary or your birthday and then you need to reward yourself. So I like to go to Tia Maria's. That's like my favorite Mexican food restaurant. So if you live on the north side of Houston, you know what I'm talking about. So review the documents but then reward yourself for reviewing the documents because it's not going to be your the most fun thing to do. So we got a couple of questions I just want to um, oh, read out. Sure. Someone said, I have access to Susie Orman's must-have documents and would like to know what would be the harm in having these. Um, well, first of all, Susie Orman, to my knowledge, is not a lawyer in Texas. So you're not going to be getting documents that are tailored for Texas use. And what we see with a lot of people that get these documents online is they don't complete them correctly. And they do not meet the certain criteria. I, I haven't looked at Susie Orman's documents in a while. And by the way, Susie Orman, I think she's a great entertainer. I don't know if I agree with her on all of her financial advice and her legal advice, but I look at her like a judge duty, she's entertaining. So I would say I would probably not use Susie Orman, nor would I ever recommend it because of all the reasons I just stated. Okay. Um, one question asked about the first party and third party special needs trust, but you're going to talk about yes, that. So I'm yes, going to, um, I'm yes. going to, I'm going to just, um, we'll, we'll hang on that one. And then someone said, how should the beneficiary for the ABLE account be titled? And so really... There is a Medicaid payback on an yeah. ABLE account. Yes. Um, so they're going to look at that. And then basically the remaining assets in the ABLE account, if it didn't get paid back to Medicaid, it's going to go to the estate of the deceased Correct. is basically how it's yes. going to go. So there's yeah. actually not a beneficiary yes. designation yeah. Yeah. on an ABLE account for that purpose. And then and, let's see. And, that's the such last a great, and let's pause there, Allison, because that's such a great thing that just a quick thing. If you're looking at the ABLE accounts, um, Allison's got a great webinar on YouTube on ABLE accounts. Look at that, but just know that the money in there goes back to the state when your kiddo dies. Okay, so that's the one thing people are like, my grandparents, the grandparents want to put $100,000. I would never suggest to putting $100,000 into an ABLE account if it's money that did not belong to that child. Allison and I will be able, or another attorney will be able to help you figure that out in a better way. Because and then the last thing um, is just, um, yes, we everybody will be getting a copy of today's slides and the recording today. So thank you uh, for that. Yes. So that's it for our question. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, great question so far. Okay, so now we're going to talk about, are you a will or trust person? 
So when I was a newlywed, I was definitely a will person because we had very little assets. Not that we have that much now, but we had, we didn't have children. So a will has to go through a probate process, which means in Texas, it's typically um, a simple process, but you are going to be looking for probably three or six to six months before assets can be paid out to your beneficiaries or your children. So that's why I like to use a revocable trust. Um, a revocable trust is a legal entity um, where you can immediately fund assets at the death of the surviving parent. And within that trust, you can have a third-party supplemental needs trust for the benefit of your child with a disability. So when we think about assets that go through probate, um, a typical asset that goes through probate would be a house, unless it's placed into a revocable trust. Um, and then the wills effective at death, you can have a third-party supplemental needs trust in there. Um, I typically... Um, depending on the situation, would recommend a revocable trust so that your family, the people that are going to be taking over the estate at your death, um, don't have to wait to go through the probate process to have money accessible for your child. Um, and the revocable trust, I think, is worth the time and effort because you can do planning for your child with a special need. You can do planning for your minor children. And the the um, uh, benefit to working with a planner is that um, someone like Allison is going to be able to help you make sure the beneficiary designations are perfect so that you avoid the probate process altogether. I'm not saying that the probate process in Texas is difficult. It can be very simple, but life is different when you have a child with a disability. You want to make sure that that child doesn't have to wait and go through probate or that probate process before having access to the cash. Um, even if you have a revocable trust, um, uh, you will still need to have a will in case you have an asset that didn't get put into the trust during your lifetime. And so, yes, I'm talking about a revocable trust, which means a trust during your lifetime can be amended or changed. And then when the in within the body of that revocable trust, you can also have a um, third-party supplemental needs trust for a child or a family member, um, anybody other than a spouse that has a disability. And then again, we have that beneficiary designation reminder um, about uh, making sure that all those beneficiary de designations are coordinated. Um, Allison, I think they there was a couple of questions. Can you help me out with that? Yep. Let's see here. Okay, um, it said you meant revocable trust, right? A third party special needs trust listed in it. Yes, a, a um, revocable trust. So here, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sample person. So here is, here's my U of H law mug. Okay, this is our revocable trust. And within this trust, we can have something that's called a supplemental needs trust, which becomes irrevocable at the death of the surviving spouse. I think maybe that might be what they're asking. Okay. So, um, so when it comes to your special needs trust, um, first party, third party, you suggest that they are revocable? Um, if it's within a revocable trust, then it will be a revocable, the third party trust will be, would be revocable, but that's okay. For these third party funds, they can go into a revocable third party trust. 
because that asset did not belong to the child or the individual that is on Medicaid. When we start talking about assets that actually belong to the person with a disability, that type of trust has to be irrevocable, meaning it can't be changed. Okay, so then we have another question that says, if a disabled adult child, which is now referred to a child that gets childhood disability benefits, inherits a home by means of a revocable trust, does it affect his SSI or Medicaid? And the answer is no. With all things SSI and Medicaid, and you can talk on the legal side, but all things SSI and Medicaid, you can have one house and one car. So whether it's in a special needs trust yes. or not, you, you yes. can have one property. Yeah. But talk talk a little bit more about the revocable trust side of it. So a lot of times families will put a home during their lifetime into a revocable trust and maybe it passes outright to that individual who is on um, adult disabled benefits now known as CDB. I think I got that right, Allison. Um, but a house is not considered what we call a countable asset for Medicaid and Social Security. So when you apply for Social Security and Medicaid, they divide the assets that that person has into two groups, countable and exempt. Exempt is going to be worth zero. So a homestead is going to be worth zero dollars. So One thing I want to mention on that, though, that I have seen become problematic before, as long as the house and the land are all together. Yeah. So if we're giving a person a house and then we're also giving them an additional five acres, that does yeah. that 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 other would be countable. Yeah. So you got to be careful with that. So you would actually need the house re redeeded with every with the house and the land together because the two separate deeds would would make the other one countable. Right. If they're not contiguous, meaning the, the pieces of property don't touch, then that five acres, if it doesn't, and, and, and by the way, in Texas, we see a lot of that because we have a little acreage here and there. Um, I would just make sure that those five acres go into a third party supplemental needs trust. Gotcha. And again, I just want to remind everybody to review their beneficiary designations. There was a question on how do you know how to update your beneficiary designation? And that is such, it seems like it's such a simple question, but it really is a complicated question because you may have other children. So what is fair may not always be what's equal. So good planning would include looking to see what each per, what each child gets or how your state's going to be divided. So that will impact how your beneficiary designations, but anything that goes to your child who is on Medicaid or SSI, or maybe planning for Medicaid or SSI, those assets should be paid to the trustee of a supplemental needs trust. Um, okay, did we see, was there one question? Was there anything else? They just asked if a house could be in a third party special needs trust. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then you're able to get the homestead um, exemption by the trustee of the third party trust giving them something that we call a life estate. So we have lots of houses in my practice that are in these third-party supplemental needs trusts. The trustee gives the Medicaid beneficiary the legal ability to live there during their lifetime. Uh, and then that allows them to get the um, homestead exemption. Um, and then I think there's a question that says, if you, hold on a second, let me go to that chat box. If you're, uh, if you're leaving a second house or rent house as passive income in a third-party trust, is that appropriate? 
Yes, you can't, you absolutely can. Now, the other question is, should you? It's going to depend on the landscape of everything else that you own. It's going to depend on who else is in your family and your life and you want to leave money to. Absolutely. Uh, things like that we want to think about, are they going to, is the trust going to co-own the house with another family member? And so that's, it's a simple question, but really a complicated answer. Okay. Um, Christina, you were talking about like beneficiary designations, and I want to hit on that because that's something that comes up every week in um, yeah. my practice of like, how do we, how much do we leave to fund the trust? So we definitely do yes. future care cost estimates. Yes. And I, I summarize it and say that we do small, medium, and large. What if my child needs some care? Yeah. What if my child needs full care and yeah. somewhere in between, right? Um, so we're able to really do those future care cost estimates. But what I want to just say that it's, there's really no right or wrong answer. We have some families that have plenty, and they want to make sure that they're fair to all of their children. Mm -hmm. So the amount that goes to the special mm -hmm. needs trust is the same amount that the other three children get. We have other families that say, no, there's going to be an unequal distribution favoring the special needs trust because we put our kids through college. They have great jobs. They're very successful and they have success that this other child will never be able to achieve. Yep. And so we're going to do an unequal distribution. And, and I just wanted to say that none of those thought processes are wrong yes. and it just depends on your situation. But I also, in the event that there's only so much money, right? And we're wondering, do we even have enough to fund the special needs trust? We would lean more towards mm -hmm. an unequal distribution, mm -hmm. providing the most funding as possible to that special needs trust in, in that example. We've yes. got one other um, question. Oh, I think that a question um, from Life Estate. Was it the Life Estate question? Yes. Okay. So here's, okay, here's how it works. I'm going to give my cup again. Okay. So I hope whoever asked that question is listening. So here's the, the supplemental needs trust, okay? And then here's the property, the homestead, goes into the supplemental needs trust. And then what happens is the trustee of this trust gives the beneficiary of the trust the ability to live in this property. That's called a life estate. So the trustee would give the child a life estate or the adult a life estate. When you do that, then you'll be able to homestead the property for property tax purposes because a trust cannot obtain a property tax exemption. It has to be an individual. So that's why we do the life estate. And then the life estate ends at the person's death. And then the third party trust would then say where that property goes after the death of the beneficiary. So I hope that was clear. Um, to whoever asked that question, it's a really good question. Okay, Allison, do you think we're ready to go on to the next slide? Oh, sorry, go back. One, sorry. <laughs> um, so why do we need supplemental needs trust? I get this question. I say, why don't I just leave everything to my trusted sister or my trusted brother or my trusted best friend? So I have a nephew with a disability. He has a rare genetic um, disorder called Vader syndrome. And my sister and I have had this question, why don't we just leave everything she would leave for James um, to me? She trusts me, I'm a lawyer. I have to do uh, everything right and dot the I and cross the T's. Um, but if something happened to me and I got divorced or I was in type of some type of lawsuit, anything she left to me individually 
and not in a trust can be subject to creditors. Um, the other thing is that there are so many Medicaid programs that can be helpful and help pay for things like housing and medical care. By the way, there are over 109 Medicaid programs in the state of Texas, and they all do different things. So that's why it's so incredibly confusing for parents and the loved ones of special needs um, uh, children and adults to navigate these waters. So you are able to leave money to a supplemental needs trust, and then it won't count for the purposes of determining eligibility, eligibility financially for these important programs. Most of these programs, as we've talked about before, divide the assets that you have into two categories, a countable asset and an exempt asset. An exempt asset will be worth $0. Typically, the accountable asset cap is going to be $2,000 or less. And the, uh, the exempt assets are going to be a home, personal art items, a car, clothing. And the big benefit we talked about is that you can put money in a trust and know that um, if something happens to the person who's in charge of the money, it is segregated and separated from their personal assets, and it will go and maintain for the benefit of your child. So what I've done personally is I have a supplemental needs trust for my nephew. Um, if something happens to me, I have some backup trustees. Um, and then maybe eventually my kids um, may become trustee for their cousin. Um, we, we're talking about that right now. The whole trustee appointment is a whole nother discussion. We might touch on it here in just a minute. Um, any questions, Allison, or comments before we move on? I, I think we're okay. I just wanted to mention that because it comes up a lot, that $2,000. And that is the big reason when we were talking about we never want to name our special needs loved one as a beneficiary because if they get more than $2,000 in their yeah. name, then that's where they would you know, run the risk of, of losing Medicaid uh, and SSI. There was some talk about this $2,000 moving up to 10,000. And a lot of times people bring this up on the webinars. It didn't pass. Yeah. So it was out there, but yeah. it didn't pass. It's time for something like that to pass because this number hasn't changed in eons and it's ridiculously low. Um, but for anybody that was wondering about that or if it passed or if it's coming soon, um, not not yet. So I just wanted to give an update on that. And the other little detail I would just like to um, add is that this asset cap of $2,000 is different for married couples in a nursing home. And the reason why that is important conversation is that when, if I have a married couple and I know that maybe they'll never apply for long-term care insurance because they can't afford it, they don't want it. Sometimes we will also do Medicaid planning for the parents. And just so you know, when you're a married couple, one of you has to apply for Medicaid, you get to keep more assets, way more than 2000 Yes, and we actually have a presentation. It's been um, in the last week, um, updates on SSI and SSDI and those additional limits for married couples and if two people have a disability, there's all kinds of different limits. It goes all the way up to $5,000. So we actually have a slide that specifically goes into the details of right. those. But long-term care Medicaid is different because a married couple can have, when we're thinking long-term Medicaid, different and apart from like regular, what we call community Medicaid. This is Medicaid that pays for like assisted living, nursing home, assisted living care at home. Sometimes the families can have um over um, a half a million dollars. And 
the new the new guidelines say that um, retirement accounts are not countable uh, once they turn 72 and are taking out required minimum distribution. So um, yeah, just kind of a note. That's that's part of that whole. There's 109 different Medicaid programs and they all have different rules. So. And and I think one thing that you and I uh, jawed on before is, but it in this state of Texas, because the question was, is could could an individual with a disability that's getting SSI and Medicaid actually have an IRA or a 401k or a 403b? Um, and under that age limit, she just mentioned the answer is no, it would be a countable asset. Some states don't count retirement assets, but Texas does. And um, so was, there is there is basically there is the, the takeaway. The Medicaid buy-in program also does not, uh, for adults who are applying for Medicaid, um, also does not count retirement accounts as well. Um, we have another question, and I know, like, from an attorney perspective, I think it's a matter of preference, like, for attorneys that are working with special needs of uh, revocable versus irrevocable when it comes to the special needs trust. We have somebody in the chat box and it says that there is is uh, irrevocable and now they'd like to name someone different as a successor trustee and how do they go about doing that the trust document may speak may the trust document may give you the ability to appoint new trustees and it all go it always goes back to the document i wish i could give you um a more specific answer margaret but that that's that you're going to have to take a look at the document well, and the bottom line is too, um, you know, we get calls every week referring, you know, asking for a referral um, for an attorney. And again, we always suggest that you work with someone that is nuanced with, with special needs and, and individuals with disabilities, as opposed to your neighbor next door, the real estate attorney. You know, we really, yeah. really recommend that. So if you have a document that maybe is outdated or you're wondering, or you need to make some changes, yeah. that is something that Christina and her office, they can review and they'll tell you it either, you know, we can make these changes yeah. or it needs to be redone. Yeah. They're going to review it and tell yeah. you what needs to happen. It, it might sure. be redone. And so we've had cases in the past where we've had a supplemental needs trust that was irrevocable and already had money in it. It's already been funded for different reasons. And so we really have two options. Number one, we can do something that's called decanting. Like, you know, like when you decant wine, I drink wine out of a box. So evidently there are people that are fancy and take wine out of a bottle and then put it into another bottle. There is a statute that is similar for a trust that needs to be fixed. There's lots of rules that associate with that. If that doesn't work and we can't draft another document, we can always do what we call a trust modification, which means we go to court and we go, hey, there's money in this trust. We want to appoint a new trustee. And the judge will typically say, okay, have everybody sign off. And and it's not the most pleasant thing, but it can be changed. So it kind of begs the question, there's no really irrevocable trust in Texas, but that's just just what the real property code says. Okay. Um, third party supplemental needs trust. They're called third parties because third party trust because of where the money comes from. It comes from a third party, meaning not assets not belonging to that person who's applying for benefits. So I have a third party trust set up for my nephew, James, because the money does not belong to him. It belongs to me. It's actually a life insurance policy. I have it established in my will because I have a very simple situation right now. I don't. I I have a special needs nephew, but not a special needs child, and he's got other plans set out for him. It can be funded and set up by anybody. 
Um, the trustee can be anybody other than the beneficiary. There's no payback to the state of Texas. And you can name alternate beneficiaries. So the trust I have set up for James, if he dies, then I have it going to my kiddos. Um, and it's reviewed with less scrutiny than what we call first party trusts. And remember, first party trusts are those trusts that are funded with a Medicaid beneficiary's own money. And those are looked at very, very carefully. Okay, Allison, anything to add on this slide? Nope, I think we're good here. <laughs> I, I think the biggest confusion, let's just talk. So, so just highlight that one more time, because I think that one big confusion that we hear okay. all the time is, I'm confused about the difference of the first party special needs trust and the third party. So first party, let's think about the kid's money. Maybe right. there was a lawsuit. There yes. was a settlement. There was something that happened. Maybe it was a scholarship refund. How about grandma, anything. It's gr the grandma dies? Money. Yeah, grandma dies and leaves them $10,000 outright from a, 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 a bank account. They're in a little fender bender and the insurance company wants to give them $25,000. Not enough money to be life-changing but yet enough money to disqualify them for these very important benefits that are helping them pay for housing or other care needs that they have. So yes, that's- so it's, it, The bottom line is it's their money. And it could be that they're working and getting SSI and they're trying to keep their account lower than $2,000. And sometimes they put their money that they've earned mm -hmm. uh, into a first party. And one question that comes up all the time on those first party, Christina, is um, can I just have my earnings just go straight to an ABLE account or straight to a first party special needs trust? Because people think that if you do that, then those earnings won't be counted. There's no, no. such thing as that. No. No. They're still going to be counted. Um, yeah, so yeah, I always yeah. want to make that point too. The only source of income that you could put to a first party trust that would not count it as income to them is child support. If you do direct child support to a first party trust, then it's not countable income to that beneficiary because there's special rules for how they count child support, how old the child is, if they're still in high school and that kind of thing. But it does not help income wise for work. You're absolutely right. And and I think the child support topic, we do talk about that every time because it's a big deal. A lot of times yeah. in the state of Texas, if you've gone through a divorce, a lot of times the child support continues yeah. yes. post age 18. It's not a slam yeah. dunk, not every time, but a lot of times yeah. it continues yeah. post age 18. Mm -hmm. And to her point, a lot of people do not understand that that child support, you know, will count against them mm -hmm. uh, income wise, but there's a fix for it. So if you have a child that's kind of transitioning, we're coming down the pipe towards 18 here. Um, and you have child support that is going to be continuing, you do need to talk to an attorney about getting that redirected to a to a first party mm -hmm. special needs trust. That's really, really important. And mm -hmm. the last thing on that, you can't just do this yourself. You can't just move it to a first party special needs trust. You have to work with an attorney on this. Um, you can't just redirect it um, because that, that there's problems with that. So please talk about that as well, Christina. Sure. Um, so when you have like a dis, you have a child that's receiving child support, you and, and here's kind of the bad news: you're probably going to need two lawyers. Um, I don't do family law, and most of the time the family law attorneys don't do special needs planning. Um, so what happens is that we get a suit, or it's a it's it's basically a child support modification that redirects it. Um, from the name of the child to a first party supplemental needs trust. Um, as with all divorce cases and family law cases, it, it does complicate whatever the complications are already in existence. Um, so you may need two lawyers that do that. And, and of course, if the 
um, attorney general's office is involved. Um, sometimes that's um, needed um, in order to run child support through. They then will have their own requirements um, for the administration and sending child support funds from the um, attorney general's office to a first party supplemental needs trust. Um, but in general, a first party supplemental needs trust is a trust that's established with the assets belonging to the beneficiary. So the, in the example of my nephew, let's say he, and he's on Medicaid, he's on a Medicaid program called MDCP for medically dependent children. If he received $10,000, um, that would put him over the $2,000 asset cap because it's his money that it has to be placed into a first party supplemental needs trust. And the law has very strict requirements on how these trusts are established and administered. So first, it has to be established by a parent, grandparent, guardian, or court order, or by the Medicaid or by the beneficiary themselves, and that's under the SNT Fairness Act um, of 2016. Um, the trustee can be any person besides the beneficiary, and the beneficiary funds are used to fund the trust. Social Security and Medicaid will allow for seed funding from the parents with whatever that amount is needed to open the bank account. Um, as we talked about, it could be needed um, if the Medicaid beneficiary receives assets out in their own outright in their own name or for child support. The distributions, meaning how the money comes out of the trust, has to be for that child's sole benefit. Meaning, you cannot, if you're a parent, you can't use it to pay the mortgage, but you could use it to pay for summer camp or some type of tutoring or some type of medical care or expense for your child that you're not having Medicaid pay for, but you as a parent have the responsibility and a duty to support. So these assets that come out of this trust are carefully reviewed by social security and Medicaid. And if you have not made it for, if the distribution has been made for something other than that child's sole benefit, then you're gonna have eligibility issues with um, Medicaid and social security. The assets have to be placed in there before the, the child's 65th birthday, not your birthday, um, and the funds can be used after the 65th birthday, but the funding has to be placed before there's the child's 65th birthday or it's a transfer or penalty. Um, and after the child dies, if there's any money left over in this first party trust, then it goes back to the state or states where that child received Medicaid. Um, and you can name backup beneficiaries, but a lot of times, um, especially if a child has been on Medicaid for many, many years, then there may be nothing left over and the state will have been paid back. So these first party trusts can be very tricky. We see them in child support cases. We see them um, kind of day to day. I call them oops trusts or oops, something has happened. We also see them in personal injury cases as well, where someone's been injured, has a settlement that's going to cause them to go over the $2,000 asset cap. And they use a first party trust in order to protect um, eligibility for Medicaid. And usually for those types of cases, they're going to have a corporate trustee or bank in charge. The most common, she, she referred, we talked about the beneficiaries and she referred to the OOPS trust. The most common reason an OOPS trust is established is because grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, family members, yes. their, their financial advisor is not nuanced and special needs at all. And they come in and they say, I love my grandson. He has special needs and we want to leave money to him. And, and the advisor says, great, let's change the beneficiary to little Johnny. Yes. And they don't know. So I just want to insert here that although we're talking to you about the importance of your beneficiary designations, 
if you have loved ones in your life that may leave money to your child, and even if you're not assuming, it's okay to talk to them and tell them about the right way. I'm assuming nothing, but I just want you to know for us to maintain state and federally funded, you know, you know, eligibility for benefits for little Johnny, there's a right way and a long, wrong way to, you know, to leave money. And here's how we do it the right way that can save you a lot of hassle and uh, the avoidance of having an oops trust. Right. Right. Um, these aren't something that we ever want to have to do, but we do have to do them. Okay. Uh, so documents for you and your, or your spouse or your partner, um, and for your child. So even if you're married, you still need a financial power of attorney. If you have a financial power of attorney, um, make sure that you sent that financial power of attorney for pre-approval to that bank, um, especially if it's a retirement account. So a lot of times people will say, oh, I don't need to do that. My husband's the beneficiary. That's great. He'll get the money when you die. But if you become incapacitated, he needs to be able to access that account. So what I like to do with my financial powers of attorney is send them to all the different financial institutions for that attorney's pre-approval for the bank. Um, and on the financial power of attorney, I like to make it effective immediately and not springing. Um, so I've been married 23 years. If something happened, I have a financial power of attorney. My husband, Kirby, would be immediately able to manage the assets in my name. Um, even if um, we've been married that long, if I didn't have that financial power of attorney, then he would have to get guardianship over me to manage that asset, which is very time consuming and expensive. Um, a medical power of attorney, if you can't make a medical decision for yourself, the medical power of attorney becomes effective when you aren't able to do that. Um, a HIPAA release is a document that is effective immediately. It's not really a decision. It's not a decision-making capacity. It's information. Um, my advice to my clients is every person that's on your financial power of attorney, your executive, or your trustee should also be on your HIPAA release because they may need that um, to be able to talk to your health insurance company. Um, a directive to physicians, um, if you have specific wishes about your life and if you became um, incapacitated and terminal, then you have less than six months to live, what are your wishes? Um, a DNR, which is a do not resuscitate. I typically have clients talk to their doctors about DNRs um, since um, uh, that's not, to me, that's a medical decision that needs to be made with a medical professional. Um, appointment of guardian for yourself, if, if you needed a guardian, or let's say you have an ex-spouse or an estranged child that you never want them to be your guardian or go to court trying to get control over your health care, your finances, um, you can make those provisions in writing. And then also for your child. Um, so you may have a minor child that you've decided when they turn 18, you're not going to go through guardianship for them. Uh, but let's say just in case they need a guardianship, you could go ahead and make those appointments. Just because you name somebody in the um, appointment of guardian, they still have to go through the guardianship process. It doesn't happen immediately. Um, appointment of healthcare agent for a minor child. So I have minor children. And then my in-laws, my mother, my brother, they're all listed on this health care appointment so that if I'm out of town and they need to, to consent to say a stitch, they're able to do that. Um, and then maybe an appointment for, it says designation, it's just a disposition of remains. Um, so 
Um, this just is a document that says how you want your remains to be handled. Would you like a traditional burial or cremation? And then if you have any special wishes about medical study for your body or organ donation, it's always good to put these things in writing ahead of time. But the big takeaway is to know just because someone's listed on your beneficiary on an account does not give them management rights during your lifetime. And we just say here is important. Um, don't, don't wait till the crisis. Look at this. Have you updated this? Are the people that you have down, are they who they should be? Do you have anything yeah. down at all? Yeah. And really, let's have intentional conversation with our aging parents and family members that we love too, because sometimes they, they either don't have it or it was done 22 years ago and right. it hasn't right. been looked at since and everybody listed on the document is deceased. And so those things can yeah. be problematic um, in that crisis situation of a heart attack or stroke or other things like that. So definitely put that on your list to check it out. Yeah, And what I think about when you're appointing people is the three T's. Do they have time? Are they trustworthy? And do they have the talent to do that? And make sure that they know that they're appointed. So, yeah. Okay, Allison, I want to have you help me with the slide, okay? <laughs> All set. <laughs> um, so I just want to reach out before we do the guardianship. I, I, Teresa says, crazy how many people don't want to talk about it. Um, Teresa, just to back up on your point, um, it says something like 40% of all lawyers do not have a will, which is actually higher than the non-lawyer population, I think. I don't remember the, that percentage was right, but actually lawyers are more likely to not have a will than the general public. <laughs> and that's like the builder that builds the million dollar homes, lives in the double wide and the painter's house needs paint, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Allison and I have had many conversations over the years about guardianship. I'm just going to lay out a few basics and then I'm going to ask um, Allison to help me out with a couple of different things here couple of things everyone needs to know. Um, the guardianship is done after you turn age 18. So I have a lot of clients that will come and say, my client, uh, my son's 17. Um, uh, we need to get guardianship right now uh, because if we're worried that he turns 18, then the, the opportunity to get the guardianship has passed. That's not true. You can get guardianship anytime after your child turns 18. Um, so sometimes the schools will say, we really, um, want you to get guardianship over your child. This is usually in the context of, uh, IEP and ARG meetings and those kinds of things. Um, so remember that's the, the school may be asking it because maybe their administration wants the guardianship. It's not necessarily anything that the kid really needs. Um, and, I, you know, Allison and I have talked about this educational power of attorney that I've drawn up. Uh, it has really no basis in statute, but basically what it does is it says, the kid says, uh, my mom and dad can attend these art meetings, they can sign off on IEPs for me, and it may postpone the school, maybe for a little bit, really wanting a guardianship. Uh, by the way, guardianships are really two parts, are two flavors. One is guardianship of the person only. That is where there's no assets or maybe the only income is social security or assets in a trust. And then we'll call it full guardianship, which is a guardianship of a person in a state. Let me be very, very uh, clear with everyone that a guardianship is a legal proceeding. 
your child will have to have their own lawyer. They will have to be served by a constable. You will have to be interviewed by an ad litem and a court investigator. You will have to do annual reports and if there's money in annual accounting. And court approval has to be done for if you want to move the ward out of the county or you want to buy or sell property. Years ago, I had a client that went and got guardianship over their daughter who had signed a lease for an apartment that they were not happy about. So they went out and they got guardianship and they used the guardianship to um, void the lease. Then they came to me and they said, we don't need guardianship anymore because the lease has been voided. The court is not going to let them in the guardianship at that point. Um, that's called restoration. And you have to be able to show to the court that that individual is now able to make medical and financial decisions. Something has changed since you originally wanted guardianship. So just a couple of little basics. Um, Allison, you want to kind of come in and add some commentary? Yeah, I think um, I think one thing people probably start calling you at 17 because they've heard in the special needs community that we can start the guardianship process six months ahead. So if you know for sure the child does need guardianship, you can get the process going so that way it's close to right after the 18th birthday that it yeah. goes through. Um, but but it can't happen prior uh, to age 18. And and let's just talk about the kind of the, the least restrictive, most appropriate okay. kind of wording of the law in Texas. Can you talk about that? Um, so when you go to court, and let me know if I'm answering your question. When you go to court, we have to show that we are using the least restrictive alternative because guardianship is incredibly restrictive. In some cases, you're going to be taking away their right to vote, their right to marry, their right to enter into a contract. All those powers can be modified, but many times they're not, and an individual will lose all those rights unless they are specifically backed out. So we have to be able to show the court that we've looked at a financial power of attorney, or we've looked at a medical power of attorney, or we've looked at some kind of supported decision making, and it's just not a good fit for that individual. We have to explain why. Maybe it's because they won't understand what the documents mean. Maybe they refuse to sign the documents. Maybe they need some kind of emergency medical. But you have to be able to show that. Um, and then um, I'm going to have Allison talk about supportive decision making. Um, Elizabeth, it's such a great question. I'm going to have Allison talk about that. Um, you have to be able to also show that there's no type of support service that could be brought in that would meet mean that the person does not need a guardianship anymore. So maybe, um, and I kind of think of this maybe in the context maybe of an older adult where maybe they don't need a guardianship if they've got someone coming in to help them pay bills. Um, so, but that is something that the court's gonna be looking at. Um, I'm gonna ha hand over the supportive decision-making to Allison because I think this is something that you're going to be able to speak better on than I am. Well, sure. I want to just mention, too, I think it's about capacity. So um, yes. we've also seen families, we could go to the other side of the coin, where in an in, in instant, a family truly did need a full guardianship. Yes. And, and instead, they had the kids sign a power of attorney, and the kid didn't have the capacity yes. to understand what they yes. were signing. Yes. And then that power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney was considered no good in crisis Avoided, at a hospital. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so those things um, are important. So what I always tell people is, first of all, you don't have to know what the right answer is. Is the right answer guardianship, partial guardianship, power of attorney, supported decision-making agreement, et cetera. But all you have to do is work with a qualified attorney and talk through, and they're going to learn 
about uh, about your loved one and kind of get all of the details and they're going to guide you that that right direction and the thing is is if a person does have a, a, the capacity to sign a power of attorney, the supported decision-making agreement, it hurts nothing to try yes. that, the, yeah. the, the, the lesser of the restrictive options. Because if you do that and it's not working, then you can up the ante to a more restrictive mm-hmm. option. Maybe it's partial guardianship or full guardianship. And, and like Christina said, there's no rule on um, – you know, you have to do this at age 18. We've seen people that are 56 years old. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, there, it, 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 if you didn't miss the boat, if you didn't do this at age 18. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is a lot of our kids, most of our kids, whether they are neurotypical or disabled, they have not arrived at age 18. One could argue that most kids at age 18 need guardianship. <laughs> um, but the reality of it is, is their brains aren't even fully formed yet. So they're still getting there. And our kids with disabilities, sometimes I always use the term that sometimes they're a little bit later to the party. So if their brains are fully formed at age 26, maybe our kids with disabilities, some of them might be 30. It, it just depends. But the supported decision-making agreement is something that's in Texas. Other states have them, but not all states have a supported decision-making agreement. And this usually goes alongside, you've got the power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney, the supported decision-making agreement. And this is something that is recognized. So if you're still trying to figure out where you're going or how you're getting there. You still have your child in public school. You want to be able to participate in those, those meetings, those ARD meetings and, you know, IEPs, things like that. This document will, um, will suffice. So this is one, um, do you include if a, a, a family's working with you, Christina, do you include that supported decision-making agreement for their disabled child and the power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney? I, I will, I will, but I want to make sure I have a financial power of attorney, of course. Sure, sure. And I know that we do have, you know, we do have supported decision-making agreements out there, but just know that your documents, when I think one important thing is guardianship in, in Texas is by county. So if you change counties, that matters. And, um, and your documents, like if you have a supported decision-making agreement in Texas and then you move out of state and they don't have a supported decision-making yeah. agreement, you need to be aware of that as well. And then, um, so I know that we're coming Cicely, to time. Yeah, and we, just one quick thing, Cicely Reed, I think she's with Disability Rights Texas, just put a great referral that they have a supported decision-making generator on their website. And by the way, Disability Rights Texas does some amazing work on Medicaid appeals. Okay. <laughs> um, so we've talked about, you want to go, I think we've talked a lot about the beneficiary designations. Um, I want to talk about the trustee appointment. So um, who is going to be in charge of a trust? And again, I, I always use my three T's, time, talent, and trustworthy. Um, I give careful consideration to a sibling serving as a trustee. Um, it's not going to be the right fit for everybody. Um, we will also talk about maybe we need a corporate trustee, which could also include a nonprofit or a, a, a master pool trust. Um, in Texas, we have the Arc of Texas Master Pool Trust. So if you want a, a professional financial institution to be in charge of money in a special needs trust rather than an individual or family member, 
A lot of those banks will have certain minimums, but the ARC of Texas does not. Um, how do you divide your estate? That's what you'll work with a planner like Allison and figuring out how are you going to divide the estate. Um, and then also we do something that's called a letter of intent for medical instructions to the trustee. I think Allison has a great um, webinar on the um, letter of intent. Um, just a couple of last minute things. Be sure the people that you've appointed know they're appointed. Um, and then review your assets and double check the beneficiary designations. I promised you guys I was going to say it a bunch of times. And here, I think this is my last and final time to check your beneficiary designations. And then our, my last comment is when we're updating your documents. Ah, here I was more aggressive. I said once a year. Um, so our death or divorce or job change. Um, always make sure the people that are appointed are able and willing to serve. Um, one question says, what's a reasonable charge for guardianship? Um, I'm going to tell you, Teresa, the lawyerly answer, which it, it depends on which county you're in. The filing fees will range. Um, you know, typically we're looking at anywhere from $3,500 and up, I would say would be your minimum. Um, some attorneys might be less expensive. Some attorneys may be more expensive. If you really need guardianship and, and uh, legal fees are out, uh, out of reach for you, I would look at University of Houston Law Center if they have a clinic. Um, yeah, she said that I had an attorney tell me guardianship was $36.50. I think, I, I think that's probably in the realm of reasonableness. Some people are going to be more expensive. Some people are going to be less expensive. Uh, yeah, I would have answered $3,500 to five grand as, as it was not contested. That's how I yeah. would have answered that yeah. question based off what I've seen throughout the yeah. state, yeah. as long as it's not contested. Yeah, so Thomas, that did not include special needs trust planning. I think, yeah, that's correct. I think that's, yes, that's correct, that that's going to be within the realm of reasonableness. Mia asked me, what if your child is high-functioning autism, he's graduating from high school this year, what do I need to get starting on? Um, just from a legal perspective, I would start wanting to look at powers of attorney, um, supportive decision-making, um, and then I would also uh, look at your state planning documents, and then Allison, do you have some webinars that you could recommend for high school that you got that um, Consolidated Planning Group has for that transition post high school? Yeah, have a lot of we, we have there. kind of a transition one, a transition planning that kind of goes through the details and, and what to keep in mind, because a lot of times people don't even know that they should apply for SSI and Medicaid because the child didn't qualify before. So um, on our, so you guys are going to get a copy of these slides and um, Christina's contact information. You can certainly, certainly reach out to her. She can review your docs, or if you need to get docs in place, uh, certainly reach out to her. You can reach out to us. We've mentioned our webinars, and um, we've got upcoming webinars. There's going to be a clickable link in these slides that are going out that'll have all the upcoming webinars. Um, and then we also have um, our YouTube channel that we've referenced several times. That's going to yes. be a clickable link. And all of those old webinars are going to be out there and, and and they're not really old. I mean, some of them happened yesterday, right? Like they're not really old. There's <laughs> over 200 webinars out there it's on um, yeah. these topics that we've we've talked about. So you guys will get these slides later today. And as always, Christina, it's always oh. wonderful chatting with you. And we start Thank talking you. about these things. It's so much information and and great, great questions. But if you have additional questions that didn't get answered today, reach out to Christina, reach out to myself. Uh, we're happy to to chat with you. So uh, thanks so much, everyone, for being here today. It's certainly been our pleasure, and we'll look forward to co connecting with you again soon.
Awesome. Y'all take care. All right. <laughs> Bye, Bye now. Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA and SIPC, Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated and Triad Advisors LLC are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.